Hello, everyone. This is another episode of uh, the Unisoft question, which is a uh, YouTube show and podcast about lawyers. Today, we have Evan Thomas, head of legal with uh, Well Simple Crypto here with us. Hello, Evan. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Please tell us who you are. Tell us about yourself. Uh, well, uh, uh, it probably comes as no surprise to anyone. Um, I'm I'm a lawyer. Uh, I recently joined uh, Well Simple to head up legal for the uh, Well Simple's Well Simple Crypto product. Uh, a couple of months ago, prior to that, I I practiced litigation for going on 15 years for uh, Osler uh, in in Toronto, uh, mainly doing you know, sort of defense side commercial class action litigation uh, with a particular emphasis on on technology. Uh, related related matters. Um, I'm originally from Western Canada. Grew up in Alberta. Uh, educated in various other provinces. That's found my way to Toronto a few years ago, and, and haven't left. And uh, you know, I have uh, my family here in Toronto. My my wife and uh, and two uh, two kids. And well, well, simple crypto, as you said, is a product. It's not a separate company, correct? That's right. It's it's what I mean. It can. Without dwelling on too many of the details, uh, technically, Well Simple Crypto is provided by a company called Well Simple Digital Assets, but it is one of the products that uh, Well Simple, as an organization, provides uh, to Canadians. In addition to Well Simple Invest, which is the uh, you know, it's a robo investing product that uh, is the first product, and I think what we're um, uh, primarily known for, uh, Well Simple Trade uh, for uh, no uh, no fee. Uh, 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 trading, uh, well simple tax, which assists with tax preparation, um, uh, well simple uh, and well simple uh, uh, crypto, um, being another, and then our well simple uh, work, um, uh, which provides products for uh, uh, for companies for for, uh, for their employees. Well, everyone knows what a bank is. Everyone knows what an investment broker is. What an investment advisor is. What is Wealth Simple? Is it a completely new type of company that uh, offers completely new type of products? How is it different from uh, traditional financial companies? Um, well, it we're we're offering some services um, that are similar to other products that are all of already available in 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 the market, but. Uh, trying to do it in a dif different way and in a better way, uh, and particularly a friendlier, uh, friendlier way. And I, I missed um, uh, one um, in particular as well. Well, simple cash, which is our uh, product for um, uh, you know, similar to products in the U.S. for, for in instant money, instant money transfer. So, um, you know, do these these services exist to a certain extent? I mean, there are other, um, there are now other robo investing products. There are other uh, low fee, no fee um, uh, uh, stock trading platforms. Uh, there are relatively you know, few platforms that allow uh, people in Canada at least to, to transfer uh, to money, um, money back, back and forth with their friends and family uh, in, a, in an easy way. Uh, and there are, are crypto uh, platforms that have uh, allowed people to um, uh, buy and sell crypto online. Um, I think there are some distinguishing patterns, particularly when it comes to to crypto. Um, in that, to, in, until recently, really, until Well Simple Crypto existed, there were no regulated options for doing so. These platforms existed outside uh, regulation 
uh, in Canada. Um, but in addition to you know that uh, distinction, you know we like to think that the products uh, we offer are are better, they're more integrated, they're more friendly, and that they're better able to help people achieve their 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 financial uh, their financial freedom, which is ultimately what our mission is all about. And all of these products are really to intended to help our customers achieve that that objective. You have quite a blue chip background. I want to talk about your path path to Wellsimple. Wellsimple is your current uh, station, but uh, you covered quite a lot of ground before getting there. So you already said that you were from Alberta. Were you born in Alberta? I was. I grew up in, in Edmonton and I, I was born an Oilers fan and I will die an Oilers fan, regardless mm. of, of well, how, how well they might do. Wow, you're not the first uh, distinguished guest uh, of the show who was born in Edmonton, by the way. So Edmonton seems to be a, a hotspot for interesting people. Uh, you, full, however, full of, full of distinguished individuals, full of distinguished <laughs> individuals. Everyone, go Edmonton. Uh, you went to uh, University of BC for your undergrad, though, right? So what made you leave Alberta and go to BC? Why didn't you just go to Toronto? I mean, everybody knows it's the center of the universe. Well, you know, you're asking me to reach back back into to history. Uh, and at that at that time, I was um, I was I was doing economics. That was what I wanted to study in, in university. And UBC had and continues to have you know a really excellent economics program. And, and really, who could uh, who could quarrel with with living in Vancouver? I always like to say there's really only uh, two ways of living in Vancouver. Uh, you either have to be a student uh, or you have to be uh, incredibly, incredibly wealthy. And, you know, at the time and still today, only one of those options was available to me. So I decided to be a student in Vancouver uh, and, and attend UBC, which, which is a fantastic experience. It's a beautiful, very livable city. The university is, is fantastic. And like just about everybody who attends UBC, it took me five years to complete a four-year degree because you know, frankly, you're, it's hard to keep your mind on your studies. As I'm looking at your education, I'm noticing that the next uh, program was at LSE, which is another blue chip institution on the list here. But before LSE, London School of Economics and Political Science, you had a two-year gap. Is this when you did software development? <laughs> Uh, you know the suspicious resume gap. Uh, yeah, all through all through my undergrad studies, even though I was studying economics, I was very um, involved in uh, in a sort of technology of working in uh, software development, systems administration, part time summer jobs through university, and then after I, I came out of university, right into the dot, the dot com boom, uh, which at least some people will remember, um, and worked for a couple of startups um, at that time doing doing software development, and we had. Know what were great ideas, but I still think were great ideas. Uh, but like many many startups at that time, uh, eventually ran out of money, and uh, you know everybody had to find other things to do. So that was when I was considering, you know, where where do I go from here? Um, I was very interested in, in the technology sector, but uh, I didn't think that was uh, the right path for me at, at that time. So decided, you know, I'd pursue eventually go to law school, but I uh, also wanted to continue what I've been doing in, in economics. Uh, so I did the economics degree in, in the UK uh, before before starting before starting law school. Uh, so that's what that you, you are you are correct that gap on my uh, at least in my public, uh, public profile. It's that's where I spent a couple of years doing doing software development for for dot coms, which 
ultimately uh, did not succeed. Uh, and I had to go in another path. Well, I wouldn't call it not succeeding because at the end of the day, it took you to, I think it contributed to your landing at Wellsimple. Your knowledge of technology ultimately helped you folk, uh, be, become interested in crypto, uh, did it not? Uh, that's right. I mean, all through law school and then through my, my practice in litigation uh, in, in law school, I, I took a number of courses focused on on technology and innovation. And then, uh, you know, in my practice, uh, I found myself drawn to the cases that had a technology element, whether, you know, that was a privacy or data security matter, like a, a security incident, uh, privacy breach, resulting class actions or, or some sort of investigation or enforcement matter. Um, uh, commercial disputes in software projects, uh, enforcing uh, commercial data licensing agreements where data is being, being commercial data, not personal information is being uh, licensed um, uh, for sale. Uh, those kinds of disputes where I could really leverage the technical background I had, where I could speak relatively fluently with uh, the technologists who were invariably involved in those kinds of, those kinds of cases. Uh, and provided a real advantage, uh, and I think helped sort of build trust with the with the clients uh, because I, I could I could speak to many of the key stakeholders in uh, the language that they they best understood. And so from within that, I was I was uh, eventually I guess it'd be about four or five years ago drawn to crypto in a professional sense, um, and this was really at the as the last big bull run began. We were increasingly seeing it at Osler, where I was at the time. Uh, clients coming to us, uh, you know, with business ideas that involve crypto, uh, they required advice. Um, a lot of things, the, the legal environment was uh, at a unclear, um, uh, you know, to be generous. Uh, and so, um, particularly a colleague at the time, and he's now a colleague again, Blair Wiley, uh, uh, chief legal officer at Well Simple. We worked together closely on advising these clients and from my perspective was advising uh, these clients on uh, sort of the risks, uh, the, the litigation or regulatory risks that they faced because it was predictable. And indeed it did come to pass that eventually there would be litigation and investigations and enforcement arising out of some of the business models that were being pursued at that time. So uh, I continued on uh, for a number of years. Uh, that was uh, an area of practice uh, acting for um, clients either involved in disputes or the contentious matters uh, that had a crypto element, whether uh, or you know, uh, private providing uh, advice on, uh, on risks uh, related to their, their business activities uh, for a number of years until recently uh, to Blair, who was formerly a, a colleague at Osler, now at Wellsimple, uh, approached me about the, uh, the position I'm now in, which is to head up the, the legal side for uh, Wellsimple's crypto product. I still want to jump back to uh, software development, your software software development stint at those dot coms, because uh, I also was a software developer, and uh, you know I want to uh, dwell on that a little bit. So, what uh, languages and tools did you use during your gig? So, uh, I think for the most um, most involved, uh, the the longest stint. Uh, was with a, a company and what we were developing was a tool for integrating equipment rentals into uh, 
sort of online platforms. So think of it, to, you know, we certainly didn't describe it in these terms at the time, but this is how, um, uh, how I would, and this is how I describe it. Now, it was basically Uber, but for, for equipment rental. So if you're at a job site, you need a forklift or, you know, sort of lighting for a job site, the idea is we go to this, this, this site, this app, and see which rental provider had the equipment you needed, uh, how far they were away from you, and what they were going to charge and place a reservation, um, you know, through, through this app. And you have to keep in mind, this was 2000, 2001. Uh, you know, these, these companies, these equipment rental companies, they had systems for, uh, you know, managing their inventory uh, electronically, but they were, you know, they were using, uh, you know, this is where we're going to get into the real technical weeds. They were, they were, for some reason, they were all built on SCO Unix and uh, they weren't, uh, they weren't applications that uh, were connected to the internet. So really what we were providing was a layer that allowed our platform to connect over the internet to the existing uh, uh, inventory management systems and you know, pull data out, put data in in order to um, make reservations for, for equipment. Um, it was a great idea, frankly. I'm, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that, uh, that exists uh, today. Uh, we were building um, on, on, a, on a stack that you know, would sound pretty familiar today. Uh, we were um, a sort of a combination of uh, sort of Linux and Apache web servers we were using Mod Perl uh, programming in Perl and uh, using Solaris and uh, Oracle uh, uh, for the back end for all of the database side. Um, so that's a technology stack that would probably be relatively familiar to someone developing 20 years later. Maybe not so much the Perl, but it was primarily Perl. Um, you know, and then uh, you know we did have some elements that were that were built in PHP. You built a a um an access layer to a legacy system as part of your job, you built essentially an adapter between the legacy system and the brand new internet. Don't you think oh, that, don't you think that a lot a lot of fintech is is exactly that? It's just an adapter over legacy banking and finance to make it palatable to the modern generation. And to finish the thought, crypto is not that. It's just swipes away the legacy and builds the financial technology from scratch, a completely new, brand new stack. Would you agree with this? I think generally, I think certainly for traditional financial institutions, um, a lot of the way in which they've approached uh, fintech and, and, and making their products accessible online is, is to, yes, build a layer that abstracts away the uh, legacy systems, uh, some of which are 30, maybe 40 years old, uh, and then to put a, a shiny uh, face on it. Uh, I think for fintechs uh, like Wellsimple, uh, you know, we're, we're building things from the ground up for the most part. Uh, and, you know, we have the, the you know, we could reimagine uh, how they, how they should work. Uh, and then I think uh, crypto, I, I would agree. It's, it's, it's absolutely different um, because it is not in any way and, and will never be reliant on centralized legally, legacy systems. Um, I think fundamentally uh, at an architectural level, 
it's not going to replicate what uh, what has existed historically. Some people are threatened by brand new technologies, brand new systems, brand new elements of society, because finance is definitely an element of our society. It's an element of our life. And crypto is proposing to build that one from scratch. I'm not surprised if some people feel threatened by that. What would you say to these people? Uh, uh, what would your response to these people be? They, they threaten. Well, I'm assuming you're asking: Do they feel threatened in a in a, in a business sense? Um, and I suppose my reaction, if that's what you're getting at, my response would be: That's that's business. There will always be threats from a in a from a business perspective to an existing business. There will always be new competitors. Uh, there will always be new products that pose a competitive threat in business. And that's just part of, of, of doing business. Um, and while I certainly don't, um, I don't fault anyone for responding to those threats, defending themselves against the best, because that's equally part of this. It is still just business. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's it's something that you know traditional institutions uh, have always and presumably all, always will have to to deal with. For those listeners and viewers who do not know what crypto is, who do not know how it works, who only heard about it in connection with uh, narratives that are not favorable. Explain to them what cryptocurrency is, what blockchain is, why we use these different terms. Crash course, but assume that they're lawyers. Right. Well, I think the, uh, let's reduce it to the, the original and, and, and perhaps simplest use case for, for crypto. Uh, that, that's Bitcoin. And what is, what is Bitcoin, what was initially conceived as? It's a peer-to-peer -peer value transfer system. It's a way for users of Bitcoin, holders of Bitcoin to transfer value in the form of Bitcoin from themselves to someone else. And this I think is the key point without um, a centralized inter intermediary. And I think that distinction, and this is, I uh, emphasize this uh, for, for a legal audience, so many of our inter uh, leaving aside crypto, all of our interactions with financial systems are mediated by financial intermediaries. If I want to send you money held in my bank, I can do that, but I'm reliant on a centralized intermediary, my bank, to take the money out of my account and put it into yours. And, and if we drill down on it, in fact, you're probably reliant on not just my bank, but also your bank, you know, some other intermediaries in the process, but that those transact the transaction between me and you is intermediated by uh, these these institutions, these centralized institutions. And I think there's a key point, and I think this is where you know this is the what's interesting for lawyers and what's challenge for lawyers. So much of our regulatory system is designed around the assumption that these intermediaries will always exist, and that these intermediaries can be tapped to achieve policy objectives, regulatory objectives. They can be subject to regulatory supervision and they can be used to 
uh, you know, achieve you know, different objectives, whether that is you know, preventing money laundering, whether that is assisting with the, the collection of taxes, uh, and any number of, of policy objectives that you know, we may all agree are, are, are laudable from a, from a social perspective. Uh, but what Bitcoin challenge continues to challenge is, is the need for these intermediaries. So that's what it does. Uh, that's what it is, I suppose, at a, at a high level. How it does that, um, <laughs> I don't want to get, we don't want to, I suppose, spin off too much detail, but you know, the idea is that, that, that Bitcoin, and I think this concept is you know, fundamentally replicated at, uh, on, on other, other types of crypto assets. Uh, it's a network. Um, it's a network of, of nodes, computers, um, and, and anyone can, can be uh, a node um, and can participate in this network and contain, maintain a copy of the ledger because at its heart, Bitcoin is a ledger that is recording movement of value from one place to another. Uh, but instead of it being a centralized ledger, such as the one that a bank would hold, it's a, it's a decent, it's uh, decentralized in the sense that any, all of the nodes participating in this network have a copy of this ledger. And, and so you know, what flows from that is that then they have to keep it in sync. Um, and that's really the innovation behind. How do you have a ledger and we're reflecting entries of who holds what, uh, who is moving what to, to whom? How do you maintain that ledger in sync across all of these uh, you know, th you know, thousands of, of nodes, um, uh, many of which you know, uh, who, whose identities are unknown? How do you maintain in sync? And that's that's the uh, you know that's the, the the fundamental technological innovation behind it is is how to do that uh, is what Bitcoin accomplished, uh, which is um, using uh, uh, means of both maintaining consensus um, and also uh, protecting that against uh, attacks from hostile parties through you know what is referred to as as proof of work. Uh, the and the basic idea is this: some of the nodes on the network are what are called miners. Their role is to take transactions that uh, a movement to value that people want to to do, bundling them into blocks, and then competing with one another uh, as to what is going to be the next valid block of transactions. And they, I say compete because what they're what mining refers to is really a calculation, uh, and without going into all of the, the details of it finding a particular solution uh, to a mathematical problem that meets certain criteria, but that is hard and that cannot be done easily. Um, uh, and that has to be repeated literally trillions of times a second in order to find the solution. And eventually one of the miners performing these calculations will find a solution, at which point they have found the next valid block other nodes in the network will accept that as valid, and then the process repeats itself. So, you know, pending, pending transactions go in, miners bundle them up uh, to uh, to validate them, try to find a, a solution for the next valid block. When one of them is found, that becomes the next valid block. Everyone accepts that, and the process repeats itself. And you know, in, in Bitcoin, it can take you know uh, literally. You know, quadrillions of, of attempts um, 
and, and you know, on, on average, about 10 minutes to find a solution for each block. Um, but it's that work. It's the fact that that is so, so, so much work that has to be done collectively that uh, it protects the network. It protects the integrity, sorry, it protects the integrity of the ledger because if someone wanted to reverse a transaction and rewrite history, they'd have to redo all of the work that has been done. And the concept is, is that should be practically infeasible um, to accomplish uh, by, by a hostile actor. So as more and more blocks are added to the chain, it becomes harder and harder to undo what has happened in the past. And so that's how everyone can stay in sync. And that's how everyone can be confident that the ledger, the copy of the ledger they hold is in fact the, the correct one. Um, and that, that was the innovation, how to keep all of these um, decentralized parties uh, who don't know one another's identities, who don't tr necessarily trust one another uh, to stay in sync. Um, and that's, that's the, you know, the fundamental technological innovation. And that's how it achieves what it was intended to do, which was to allow transfers of value without, you know, there having to be a bank with its central ledger moving, you know, manipulating ledger entries to transfer value from, from me to you. What is it about this industry that uh, you just described, uh, this technology that you just described that sounds like uh, an elaborate game crafted by <laughs> clever engineers? What is it about this industry and technology that attracts lawyers with stellar backgrounds such as yourself, such as some of our friends down in the States that we both know about recently uh, went in-house. What is it about this tech that is um, uh, uh, acting as a magnet to stellar talent, legal talent right now? What do you guys see in it? I think uh, it's a combination of things. I, I think, I mean, just speaking for myself, uh, in a law, I think we can all agree that law is conservative in the sense that it's it, it's not prone to, to innovation. I mean, the whole idea, the whole system is, is based on precedent, looking at the past, what has happened in the past, in order to provide advice about the future. Um, so it's not it's not prone to <laughs> revolutions or 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 or, or upheavals. Um, every so often, uh, new areas of law will emerge um, that, uh, uh, that, that, that challenge the status quo, that are uh, an, an upheaval of sort. Uh, I suppose in the, you know, I would suggest that uh, in the generation of, of lawyers before you and me, uh, you know, privacy law was such an area, an area of law that really didn't exist uh, until the you know, maybe late 1990s, early 2000s, but now is an area of law that permeates so much of uh, uh, in our everyday lives, uh, there are you know, uh, you know dozens, hundreds of you know exceptionally talented lawyers who specialize in privacy. But it's an er uh, uh, area of law that just didn't exist uh, a generation ago, uh, you know, thirty years ago, um, other than in, in the, perhaps the most nascent sense. So, uh, you know, uh, it, when that happens, it creates all sorts of interesting um, issues uh, to be considered, uh, to be advised on, and, and frankly, opportunities. Um, uh, it's, it's always, uh, you know, more exciting and potentially more rewarding to be, to be uh, practicing in a new and growing area, particularly if there are really interesting 
legal legal problems um, in it. And and fundamentally, I, I strongly believe uh, that crypto, digital assets, blockchain, whatever you want to call it, that is a technology that is uh, profoundly um, uh, affecting um, uh, many areas of law. Um, you know, fundamental concepts of property law, certainly securities law, uh, certainly anti-money laundering um, and, and banking law, uh, tax law. Uh, you can already see impacts in uh, family law um, and uh, you know sort of estates law. Um, as digital assets, as blockchain continues to grow in terms of adoption by the general public, there are going to be novel legal issues that will percolate up across uh, you know virtually any uh, uh, area of law that you can think of, uh, and that's going to require lawyers to think about. Uh, these, you know, the technology and how it's being used and the legal issues uh, created. And there really is no playbook as there are some fundamentally different features of digital assets or crypto assets um, that, that challenge a lot of foundational assumptions of the law. And just to, you know, to give an example, um, so much of our system of financial regulation is based on the regulation of intermediaries, banks, securities dealers, uh, those sorts of entities. Um, but blockchain and crypto has uh, permits uh, not just the transfer of value, but increasingly more complex transactions, financial transactions, to be performed um, without such an intermediary. Which is a real, from a policy perspective, is a real regulatory challenge because how then can uh, regulators uh, exercise uh, supervision? You know, who do they regulate if there are no intermediaries and what you instead have are individuals and entities transacting with one another using uh, pseudon you know uh, you know uh, using addresses you know blockchain addresses that are just a mix of letters and numbers how do you regulate that kind of that kind of system so that's that's a profound challenge uh, in that area but those challenges exist in other areas of law and will continue to, to crop up and that's really I think for me uh, what drew me to it. There are just going to be so many really interesting legal issues that are going to require a complete, uh, potentially a completely new way of looking at, at how to uh, you know, apply the law, uh, how to draft the law, uh, and how to advise, advise clients. So that, that's really what drove me. And I think, you know, from others I know um, who advise in, in this area, it's that intellectual challenge that has, has attracted them as well. How much of your work at uh, Well Simple Crypto about compliance with existing regulations, uh, and how much is about building your product to potential future rules and regulations and laws? You said that even until recently, a lot of crypto companies operated outside of the regulatory space because there were simply no laws that either applied to crypto or that uh, regulators were interested in applying to crypto. This is changing, but it's still early and the body of regulations is still not, has not matured. So how much of your work is just straightforward or good old compliance work? Uh, and how much of your work is really predicting regulations or maybe advocacy? with regulators? Oh, it's hard to, I, I, certainly there are, there are elements of, 
a both in in my role. Um, there are, uh, you know, we and I, and I mean, I'll just provide a bit of a bit of context. Um, uh, as I mentioned, you know, you know, historically, there were always platforms that, including ones operating in Canada, that allowed customers to buy and sell crypto assets, Bitcoin, online. Um, and I think most people will at least have heard um, of you know Quadriga CX, which collapsed in uh, 2019, uh, was insolvent, had to seek ultimately bankruptcy uh, uh, protection, um, and uh, you know investigations by regulators, and the, the trustee determined that, that fundamentally it was a, it was it was a fraud perpetrated by its its founder and directing directing mind. But Quadriga was not subject to regulation in the sense it wasn't registered with a securities regulator, really any other type of regulator, um, because at the time there was no uh, law or framework that applied to these, these types of, of businesses. Now, shortly after, you know, in the wake of that, shortly after Quadrico collapsed in 2019, Canadian securities regulators and, and um, uh, IROC uh, began a process initiated by a discussion paper of uh, as to their jurisdiction to to regulate uh, platforms like Quadriga uh, CX, and this led, and I sort of skipped to skip to the end. Uh, Canadian security regulators take the take the view that uh, platforms that are buying, selling, and holding crypto assets for their customers, in the sense that they they hold wallets that have uh, the crypto assets for their customers. Um, so effectively acting like a, like a crypto crypto bank are engaged uh, in in activities subject to securities laws and therefore have to be um, have to be registered under securities laws and uh, and and are subject to to regulation by provincial and territorial securities regulators and and, and IROC. Um, so now this this is a transition. Um, the uh, well simple crypto was the first platform to obtain a registration under Canadian securities laws, and that was that was in August of, of 2020. Um, more recently, in fact, just last week, another another platform secured the second such registration, uh, and Canadian securities regulators, in particular the OSC, have made it clear to the industry that any platform, whether in Canada or outside of Canada, that is dealing with Canadians, um, uh, in, in terms of, of selling, uh, buying, selling, and holding crypto assets, has to comply with Canadian securities laws and and register. So there are um, a number of other platforms, both in Canada and uh, and presumably outside of it, that are going through the process of, of registering and bringing themselves into compliance with with Canadian securities law. But um, you know, at this time, there are really only two that are, are are fully registered. So we have terms and conditions that apply to to us. There is a certain element of there is a obviously we have to comply with the the, the obligations that that apply to us. And then there are a variety of other um, uh, matters that we have to comply with. Um, again, the relatively recently in the last year, year and a half, uh, anti-money lending law laws have um, uh, been more explicitly applied to anyone who deals in, in virtual currency. So uh, we and any other platform dealing in, in virtual currency has to comply with sort of federal anti with Canadian federal anti-money laundering laws. Um, we obviously have uh, commercial relationships that have to be negotiated and, and maintained with you know, custodians and liquidity providers and other service providers that help us uh, provide the product. Um, so the, you know there are certainly uh, 
uh, you know, compliance and, and commercial uh, responsibility. But we're also, um, as I say, this space is is very, uh, very, very new, uh, and even the the regulatory bodies are uh, you know, consulting, seeking uh, ideas of, of how to regulate. So there's a certain element of the the role that also involved in uh, speaking with uh, with regulators about how. Um, the space should be regulated because there are new issues that, that come up um, uh, frequently uh, where there really isn't a clear analog under securities laws, i.e. that is you know, a requirement uh, that applies to traditional securities, you know, equities, bonds, uh, that can be applied um, uh, logically to, to, to crypto assets. Sometimes there are differences uh, and, and the rules have to be modified or applied in a different way. So there is there is a fair bit of that, and that does involve advocacy as as to what is the best way uh, from a policy object, uh, a best way of achieving um, uh, a policy objective. Uh, and then there is just simply be be um, you know sort of more esoterically as new um, applications and, and technologies uh, you know come down the pipe. Um, you know, without going into all the, you know the details, as uh, you know we see the emergence of decentralized finance. Protocols, as we see proof of stake chains uh, come into you know, adoption, there are going to be all sorts of legal issues, securities legal issues, tax legal issues uh, arising out of, of those technologies. And to the extent that you know we make them part of our product, we're going to have to work through those issues, uh, and that's going to involve an element of advocacy as well. No, I think it's not a completely crazy assumption that one of the worst parts of ux in crypto products is the interface with the banking system and probably because of the wait times people who are used to modern technolo technological products are used to instant gratification they are used to instant speeds things happening right away so and as soon as you touch banks yeah you have to wait for three days for your deposit to be processed if you are depositing anything significant right so i understand that many crypto products still have to have that link in the chain because most money is still in the banking system people users need to get that money into the crypto product somehow but my question is, why aren't more crypto companies actually starting their own banks? Or is it not about uh, banks style and business process? Is it completely about uh, compliance and regulation, those, those UX issues? Why is Wealthsimple, for example, not starting a bank to solve these problems? Um, well, uh, you know, I mean, just uh, sort of objectively, um, it's the process. Leaving aside any connection to to uh, to crypto, the setting up a new bank in Canada, frankly, in any jurisdiction, is a considerable effort. Um, it's it's no small uh, no small small feat, um, and I think it's generally that's reflected in uh, you know my my knowledge of banking regulation is is limited. But my perception, at least, is there have been very few new banks generally. Uh, in Canada, uh, in light of the competitive environment, the regulatory requirements, um, you know, the market market opportunity. Um, but I think that just in terms of, of crypto, um, 
you know, if all that is required is means for clients to effect payments, you know, to buy and sell crypto, then then setting up a whole new bank for that process is um, is perhaps uh, you know overkill. Um, I think what we have seen, um, and this, you know, and this has occurred uh, recently, we have seen the emergence of um, uh, other kinds of regulated institutes, specifically uh, trust trust companies. Um, there's a, a new uh, trust company in Alberta, Tetra Trust, that has been established with the objective of holding crypto assets as, as a custodian. Um, um, so, and, and we may see others, um, and, but that's solving, a, a, I suppose, a different problem, less about payments and uh, affecting, affecting uh, you know, sort of providing payment rails for crypto, uh, but providing a means for uh, crypto assets to be held um, uh, in a sort of recognized regulatory framework. Um, so and, you know, the other uh, you know, banks and, and trust companies also provide uh, an important function, um, leaving aside sort of consumer payments in terms of holding assets for their clients and being subject to prudential regulation by provincial trust regulators or, or OSFI. And that is, you know, necessary to comply, um, you know, with securities laws as, as as well as other laws. So we are, but I guess to your point, we are seeing that, and we may see more of it as to whether that is something, uh, you know, well, simple would would eventually do. Uh, I, I I can't comment, um, but uh, I I wouldn't say that it's not happening, and there isn't movement in in that direction. Um, certainly on the custodial side, whether or not we, you know, we'll see someone set up a a pure crypto bank. Um, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if there's necessarily a product market fit for that, but uh, but but who knows? Um, but I you know I would say is it a general comment? In in general, the securities regulators have been uh, more advanced in their their thinking uh, around how to regulate crypto assets um, uh, within their their sphere of of, of, of jurisdiction. Uh, I think now starting to see regulators like OSFI. Prudential regulators starting to think about digital assets um, uh, more, um, but um, you know, whereas the securities regulators have been looking at this field for at least a few years, uh, it does seem that the prudential regulators are only more recently starting uh, this this kind of policy exercise of, of monitoring the uh, the area and and seeing what uh, what rules might need to, to to change or otherwise be adapted. Well, you may not be starting a bank. Uh, but your job is still pretty complicated and hard. So what do crypto lawyers like you do in their spare time? <laughs> Blow off some steam. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, I think, I think like, I, I think like most, uh, most people in the last year and a half, particularly those who, uh, um, you know, have, have younger kids who spend a lot of time with their, their kids. Um, uh, and that's certainly been my 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 experiences. Uh, whether that's you know, going for a going for a bike ride with the kids or playing sports, soccer, or something else for my kids, that's generally where I I spend my time. Um, certainly in the in the in the last year, um, and I and I do think the uh, uh, particularly in the last year of the pandemic, it has renewed my appreciation for uh, the the outdoors and getting getting out of the city. Uh, so whenever possible, uh, you know I, I enjoy that. Um, uh, and uh, you know, uh, but for the pandemic, I would also like to to travel more. 
Uh, I took my first flight in over two years, uh, you know, just a couple of, of weeks ago. Uh, but I hope to get back to that eventually, uh, more frequently at least. Hey, Evan, it's been a treat to talk to you about this. I really appreciate it. I want to wish you all the best in your new gig. I think uh, Well Simple was really fortunate to get you. And uh, let's keep in touch. I know that people crave a lot of uh, information about this area, and uh, you are perfect person to share and educate. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for, for having me on. It's, it's always a, a pleasure to talk about this stuff. As you, as you can tell, I, I do enjoy speaking about it. And uh, you give me an opportunity, and I, I will talk your ear off. But thanks very much for uh, giving me the time.